Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com. What is God up to in this city? That we have slow feet when we walk around. That we are conscious of the conversations that we're having, whether they're in this room or outside this building. That we want to be a community of compassion. Glow, who just uh, did announcements, is going to be really helping kind of uh, charge and spearhead that kind of part of, of this community. The second thing is that this is a, a community of creativity. Now, before you're just like, well, I'm not artsy, so I guess that doesn't apply to me. Um, let me just kind of rephrase that. Uh, we believe that every single person in this room is uniquely designed in the image of God. And the very first thing we see about God in the scriptures is that he's the creator. And so by being made in the image of God, you have a unique disposition towards creativity. That might look like engineering. That might look like education. That might look like um, in the medical field. That might look like you might be an artist. But the idea is that we are going to continue to be a community that champions artists and creativity because we see this as a true expression of who God is. Third thing is that we are a community. We're a family, we're a body, we're a bride. These are the three terms that Jesus uses in talking about the ecclesia, this kind of counterculture community. And so it's important to know that as much as anyone can come and hopefully we see something today. The idea is that we would move more and more into living life together to practice the way of Jesus. And so that's why we talk about open tables. It's why we'll, that's why we'll go to Julian and pick apples together. Because once we start to learn each other's stories and once you start to tell your story, it, it gives invitation and space for Jesus to begin to tie our hearts together. Also, we want you to recognize that um, I'm a pastor here, but not the only pastor here, uh, that this church is led through a community. It's led through a community of staff and pastors and a council. And so there, might, there may be different voices uh, here, and, and many of those voices have been sowing into the city for years. And so for those of you who feel like this is a new church, I just wanted to give clarity. We are coming alongside what God began seven years ago through a community called Soul Church. This is actually their seven-year anniversary today. And so we think this is incredibly significant, that God gets to do what he does on the seventh day, and he brings newness and new life. And so we're just stepping into that. And so, um, but along with the team that's been here sowing in the past few years, we've invited some new people to be a part of the, the kind of leadership community. Isaac and Emily, who just led worship, can we give them a round of applause and welcome them? Just moved here from New York City, um, and so make sure that you guys, I know everyone has a different opinion where the best California burrito is. Tell them all of them. Just continue to welcome them into San Diego life. Um, Brian and Caitlin Barnes are going to be coming, moving here at the end of December from South Africa um, because we didn't feel like New York was far enough away. We just kept going. Uh, Brian's actually going to be here next week to teach. Um, and so you don't want to miss next week. Come back out. He's an amazing communicator and shepherd. Him and his wife and the two boys are so precious. And so we're excited to welcome them in to, again, the community leading this. The next thing we wanted to let you know is that we are a community of contribution, meaning that we live in a world where everything is continuing to be pushed towards consumerism. But the body of Christ is unique in that everyone who comes here contributes. Now, in a room this size, that might look like you're sitting down and hearing a teaching. 
But the idea is that in order for us to function as a body, it's that you get to understand your unique role in that. And what part of the body are you? And so our hope is that this would be a place that activates not you to try and mimic someone else, but for you to feel a, a strong sense of call in your own life to lean into what God has called you to do. And so that, and that might look like in the context of here, um, for, for instance, right now we're, we're building our teams. And so whether it's building a security team, uh, whether it's serving in our children's ministry, whether it's being on the creative team, whether it's helping glow out as we develop our compassion ministry, uh, it could be that. It could be through giving. We just did a, a giving liturgy talks about, and I think that it's important to note that I recognize there's probably some college students in the room, just a few. Um, generosity is not tied to how much excess you have in your bank account. Generosity, according to scripture, is tied to your level of trust in Jesus with whatever you have. And so wherever you are, begin as a disciple or follower of Jesus, if that's you, that's something we could continue to trust him with. The, um, the other thing is, I, I just kind of poked fun that there are there's a lot of young people in the room. You might be here and be like, wow, is this like a young adults group? And uh, the answer to that is, is an absolute, no, this is a church. And the, but two things I want to say, we are so thankful uh, that God continues to draw young people to the church. That is defying statistics in America. And so we want more of that, more young people to come and to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I also want to say, if you identify with being a mother or father in the faith, we need you. We need you a part of this community. And I, would, and I say that on behalf of the young people in this room. This is, it, it does not do us any good for us to silo off into our own homogenous groups, but we need to continue to learn from each other in our own unique stories and age stages. And so if you're a mother and the father, if you're a grandmother or grandfather in the faith, we welcome you. Um, if you are a young person, we welcome you. We want to continue to see God build the family that's here. And then the last thing, and, and probably the most important thing you need to know about this church, is this is a church about communion. And communion means that we are connected to the living God through the sending of his son Jesus and the pouring out of his love on the cross and the resurrection life that he gives us. And so everything that we do here, whether it's our acts of compassion or serving together or meeting up to go pick apples, all of that is tied to our union with Christ. And so that's why we spend a significant time worshiping, singing songs and hymns, what the Bible tells us to do. It's why we spend a significant time praying and entering into dialogue with the living God. This is why we will teach the word, because we believe that God gave us an ability to interact with him through hearing and being transformed by the scriptures. And so on Sundays, we'll gather and we will worship and sing and pray and love one another, and we will hear teachings from scriptures. You can expect that every single Sunday morning. And we do that not because it's just what's always been done. We do this because we see Scripture pointing out this is, this is one of the, these are some of the primary ways that we share communion with God. Um, and so with that, we're going to move into a time of teaching. Uh, but I'm going to invite my friend Rose to come up here, and she's going to read our text for the day. Um, and in a way to honor the Holy Word of God, would you just stand to your feet as she reads the Scripture? Our reading this morning is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome 
bought spices so that, that, might, that they might go and anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, after the sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And they entered the tomb and they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side and, then they, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going on ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. What a strange way to end a book. Anyone else pick up on that? Maybe you didn't realize it, but this is the end of Mark. This is how it ends. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now, if you have a Bible in your lap, you may notice that there's some text that continues after that. And if you're in the NIV or ESV, you'll see that that text is italicized because that text was added later. It's not in the original manuscripts. It was added by the church to kind of round off this harsh ending. And so there's this, there's this dialogue going on between theologians as far as like what What's up with that ending? Why does all of a sudden there's like a kind of a lack of resolve? Yes, there's the resurrection, but all of a sudden these women who have been faithful with him and have been honored in Mark's gospel hear this information and it says that they're trembling and bewildered. They went out, fled from the tomb, and then they ended up not doing what the angel said. The angel said, go tell her. They said they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And then the book, the original manuscripts just stop. And so I wanted to kind of work through that a little bit. Has anyone ever seen a movie where the ending just, just kind of kills it for you? It can, anyone like want to shout it out? You're just like, it was a great movie, and then all of a sudden the ending happened. Space Odyssey. Space Odyssey. Anyone remember, I mean, like this is like, I think I was a teenager, was it? The Perfect Storm? Oh, it's the worst. I'm like enjoying this movie, and it's thrilling and exciting, and then like everyone just dies. I'm like, what? It was a waste of two hours of my life. And so if you're just like, thanks for spoiling the movie, you're welcome. Don't see it, okay? I, I, wonder, if, I wonder if through the centuries there's people reading the, the book of Mark that kind of come to the end and they're just like, what? But what's, what's fascinating is that the way Mark ends his book, most theologians agree, is incredibly intentional. He's wanting to evoke something in the reader, in the audience, that otherwise would not be there. 
And the reason we know this is because the way Mark has structured his entire book, it always lends to this one question, who is Jesus? And so it makes perfect sense that the last sentence of his book tells us the story of women struggling with that same question. Who is Jesus? And so I want to work through three different themes this morning. Number one being what we just talked about, the, a complex, preoccupied community. This is the early church. It's complex in their level of faith. They're preoccupied with fear. But yet there's still a community that Jesus calls together. Secondly, I want to talk about how the other gospel writers fill in the story as a curious, grace-filled journey that every single one of these characters end up having some sort of encounter with Jesus. And lastly, I want to focus on the heart of this chapter, which is a compelling narrative of the resurrected king. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that you meet us in your might and strength and power. And you meet us in our questions, our fragility, our perplexity, Lord God, that you meet us in that and you meet us with patience, you meet us with presence. And so, Lord, I'm asking that you would do that here. Lord, that no matter where anyone is at with their faith, that they would find themselves confronted with the beauty and the wonder and the grace of a God who is alive. So Holy Spirit, come. In your name we pray. Amen. The way Mark tells the story, specifically the end of the story, is he really spends time focusing on these characters, these women, and the role that they're playing in, in the story. And so don't take the last verse of Mark as some sort of negative twist because everywhere else, the last few chapters of Mark, he is elevating these women. They're the ones who did not betray or deny Jesus and stood with him when he was on the cross. They were the ones who helped buy the spices to prepare for burial. It was Mary who, who broke the ointment of alabaster jar to anoint Jesus before his burial. The, the women seem to be the ones who are getting it right. But I think what's beautiful about the way Mark ends this is that it speaks to the human experience that every single one of us has when it comes to our relationship with God in that rarely is it really nice and put together. And if, if it is for you, I'm, I'm so glad. But at the same time, if you live enough life, you will be confronted with your own ideas about God that don't make sense anymore. You see, the women... As the Sabbath ended, so Saturday night, they went and bought the spices. And then when the sun rose, they went to go and anoint the buried body of Jesus. Why? Because their idea of Jesus was that he was dead. They're preoccupied with death. They're preoccupied with all that has to be done for the, to honor Jesus in his death. And it's in that space that they're confronted with a whole different idea of who Jesus is. And they don't know what to do with it so much that they're bewildered and perplexed by what they're seeing, and they run off not knowing what to do. 
And there, there's a level of comfort I have reading this because throughout my journey of faith, this has happened multiple times where I show up expecting to see one Jesus and it's another one. Now, but here's the thing. As God continues to expand in my own mind and heart, it's not in, it's not in my own construct and creativity. Actually, it's rather, it's like layers get peeled back out the more I engage with the scriptures. The more purely... I start to see Jesus, but here's the other thing. I recognize that I'm still on that journey of wrestling with that question, who is Jesus? My friend A.J. Swoboda, in his book, um, his recent book that just came out says this, sometimes we love our ideas about Jesus more than we love Jesus. If it takes a lifetime to discover a person, it will take an eternity to discover God. And so one of the things I love about the ending of this book is just how much we can all identify with it. So that's you in regards to like your own faith and your relationship with God. And you're just like, man, I I thought God was like this, but I don't know if he's like this anymore. And some of that scares me. I I want to invite you in to a journey because this is what Jesus continues to do. James Edwards, who's a commentator on this passage, says this really well. He says, the fight of the disciples, even Peter's pitiful denial, have not been the last word. It is not given to human beings to speak the last word. The last word belongs to the risen Lord. I am going before you. The first act of Jesus' ministry was calling the calling of four fishermen into community with himself. And the first word of the resurrected Jesus is the reconvening of the same community of disciples. I love that. That within our own journey of the ups and downs and the doubts and the faith and the excitement and the joys, all of that, it is not our own experience that gets the last word. It is the word of the resurrected Christ. And what is the last recorded word of Jesus? I'm going before you. Meaning I'm... What what, what were the women supposed to go tell the disciples? He says, he's already ahead of them. He's going to meet them in Galilee. What a beautiful picture of Jesus' comfort to them. He says, hey, I'm already going to meet you there. Just go tell them. They don't need to worry about anything. They don't have to go and look for me because I've already gone before them. Which leads into kind of our second theme this morning is that It seems that all of these characters, right? Peter just denied Jesus. All the disciples have deserted him. The women who've been faithful to the end even now have their own questions because their idea and paradigm of who Jesus is has just been just totally changed in their own mind. And so I wanted to spend a minute actually tracking each one of their journeys because all of them are very unique as far as how Jesus shows up. But something to point out is that whether it's the women, whether it's the disciples, whether it's Peter, is that every single one of them end up coming around to a fuller understanding of who Jesus is. But here's here's what I think is beautiful, especially in our Western intellectual age. It's not through evidence. It's through an encounter. Notice what the angel invites the, the women to do. Come look at the tomb. Survey the evidence. Use your, like, I mean, it's all right here, but what's really fascinating is that it wasn't the evidence of the empty tomb that made them recognize what Jesus was up to. Rather, it was an encounter. 
And so I wanted to just kind of follow four different characters. We're going to have to leave the Gospel of Mark to do this, because Mark doesn't tell us this, but of how they came around from being deserters and doubters to faithful disciples willing to give their life. The first one, let's just talk about Mary. For Mary, in John's gospel, chapter 20, it wasn't the evidence of the empty tomb. It was an intimate encounter. Listen, he said that after everyone had gone away, Mary is still in the, in the garden, and Jesus shows up to her, and he says, he asked her, women, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener. I mean, think about how far she is from recognizing what Jesus is up to. Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbi. I think it's so fascinating that John fills in the story. It wasn't the angel, the rolled away tomb, the empty grave. It wasn't the evidence provided. It was the moment that she heard him call her name that she finally recognized that Jesus is alive. Let's, let's look at Luke's account. Luke tells us a story of, of two men leaving Jerusalem. Why? Because the, the kingdom of God they thought was coming had failed, they thought. Jesus was dead. So what do you do? You go home. And so on their way home, Jesus shows up to them. This is so funny to me. And they don't know who he is. Again, because they were so attached to their own construction as far as who Jesus was that they, he literally starts explaining to them, walking with them for hours, all the prophecies in the Old Testament pointing to him. They still don't recognize him. I mean, talk about an amazing lecture. But it says this, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. So Mary it took Jesus calling her name. For these men, again, it was, not the, it was not what you would assume, kind of this intellectual demonstration of his messiahship. It was when they were at the table and they broke bread and all of a sudden they're like, you're Jesus. Let's look at Thomas, probably the most famous of the bunch, so much so that he got a really bad nickname the Bible never gave him in Doubting Thomas. But rightfully so, he tell all the disciples have seen Jesus, and Thomas wasn't there, and we don't know why. But he essentially says, unless I see Jesus myself, then I, I'm not going to believe. And unless I get to actually touch his wounds, I won't believe. Maybe some of you guys identify with that kind of personality. You're like, I need to see it for myself. And look what Jesus does. It says, a week later, his disciples were in the house again. This is in John 20. And Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your fingers here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me yet believe. I, lo I love Thomas's story because he lays out an ultimatum for Jesus. But what's wild is that the way the, the language is written, it doesn't seem that, G, that Thomas ever even touched the wounds. But Jesus, in his grace, said, if that's what you need, here I am. 
and comes and reveals himself in the presence of that room. Last one, this is probably my favorite, is Peter. Right? Peter's is the guy who was most vocal about, I will go to the death for you, Jesus, and yet finds himself denying Jesus three times before the rooster crows at one of those times to a, a young girl. In John 21, we can't read the whole thing, but there enters into this dialogue where Jesus goes, and the same way he denied Jesus three times, he goes and confronts him three times, asking this question, do you love me? And as he's doing that, he invites them in, feed my sheep, tend my lambs. And he restores Peter in this process. And the reason I love Peter is for a couple reasons. Number one, according to Mark's gospel, it's through Peter's eyewitness account that this is being written. So Peter has a really unique part of this story. And Peter doesn't show up in Mark's gospel at the end. He's, he's left out of the story. In John's gospel, which is written much later, it, it tells a story of how it wasn't just one moment. It began, catch this, it began a process for Peter. I think when you hear the term encounter, you're thinking of like some really great worship night with fog machines and lasers and like that was your encounter with Jesus. For Peter, his revelation of Jesus fully alive, resurrected, inviting him back into kingdom work came not through a moment, but through moments, through a journey. It was dynamic. It wasn't static. And he continues to do so. If you read Peter's epistles, if you read Peter in the book of Acts and how many times he gets it wrong and kind of has to go back and repent and say, oh, I wasn't doing it right. There's something so beautiful about that. And so one thing I wanted to point out this morning is if you're like the people on the road to Emmaus, if you're like Thomas, if you're like the women, if you're like Peter, I think that there's something about this space that we'd love for you to feel comfortable and safe enough to go on a journey towards Jesus. You don't have to have all the right answers, but the hope is that there would be an openness in your heart to do that. Robert Mulholland wrote a, a book on topic called spiritual formation and the book invitation to a journey talks about this process that we're all in i wanted to read you an excerpt from the book because i think it describes what we're talking about here really well he says when spirituality is viewed as a static possession the way to spiritual wholeness is seen as the acquisition of information and techniques that enable us to gain possession of the desired state of our, our spirituality. Discipleship is perceived as my spiritual life and tends to be defined by my actions that ensure its possession. Thus, the endless quest for techniques, methods, programs by which we hope to achieve spiritual fulfillment. The hidden premise behind all of this is the unquestioned assumption that we alone are in control of our spirituality. In brief, we assume we are in control of our relationship with God. I can describe so many of us. But then he goes on to say this. But when spirituality is viewed as a journey, however the way, the way to spiritual wholeness is seen to lie in an increasingly faithful response to the one whose purpose shapes our path, 
whose grace redeems our detours, whose power liberates us from the crippling bondage of the prior journey, and whose transforming presence meets us at each turn in the road. In other words, holistic spirituality is a pilgrimage of deepening responsiveness to God's control of our life and being. The famous, the famous British poet, William Henley, in his, book, in his poem, Invictus, says this, and I'm sure you've all heard this, I'm the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. This is written out of a man who had to have his leg amputated and in his attempt to regain control of his life, writes these famous words. But as much as our culture wants to wave this flag, The gospel says something different. Ephesians 2 says, For it is by grace you've been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork. Masterpiece, poema, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And I love the contrast of this. Many of us, including myself, grew up within a tradition where, whether it was taught or not, it was perceived within me that my relationship with God was contingent on me, my faithfulness, my, my drive, my hunger, my, my level of theology or intellect and what I have continued to find as I search the Gospels is a narrative of grace, meaning that it is Jesus. I mean, think about this. With Mary, the road to Emmaus, Thomas, Peter, Jesus is the initiator in every one of those encounters. And you may be here, and there's a hunger in your heart to know God more, and God blesses that. Seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. But can I tell you something? You are not anywhere close to seeking God as much as God is seeking you. God is relentlessly pursuing every single one of you to show up not as a dead Messiah, but as a risen king. And that may require some unlearning. But if you receive and open yourself up to the grace of God, you will be invited on a journey that will transform your life. And your only job is to open up and respond in whatever level of faith you have, one day at a time, one step at a time. If you're just like, how do I do that? I'm I'm just going to give you um, a couple of ways uh, that we, as followers of Jesus, make space in our life. And those is, that's what's called uh, what we call spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices. Now, the difference is this is not a bunch of checklists for you just to do to get closer to God. These are practices, habits, rhythms that open up your heart so that you can encounter the God who's pursuing you. So even as you leave, you'll see a table out there. It has practicing the way cards, things like Sabbath. I mean, if you want, if you want to really mess with your soul, just rest. I'm serious. Go do nothing in the name of Jesus. And see, I mean, I mean, and see what it does in you. It will drive you mad just sitting there and not having anything to show for your time other than God's desire to be with you. I mean, fast. 
Like, just skip one meal, I dare you, and begin to start seeing how much your mind moves towards that appetite and begin to say, Spirit of God, would my drive for you increase like that? Spending time in Scripture, not because you're trying to gain intellectual knowledge, but rather you get to sit and let the truth of God wash over you. And so, and again, this isn't a whole sermon on spiritual formation and disciplines, but I will say this. You are invited on a beautiful journey with Jesus, wherever you are. And the idea is not that here's a backpack and start climbing a hill. It's rather, why don't you sit down? And would you let the loving grace of God come wash over you again and again and again? Which leads to our last point this morning. Is that we are left with, at the end of Mark and for all of eternity, a living God, a resurrected king. Guys, I mean, just think about the, the magnitude of this. He's here. The God enthroned in all heaven and earth, his spirit is in this room, not because we sang songs, but because of his sacrifice and the pouring out of his spirit. And because he resurrected, we now get to live in that. I want to read you some words that Peter wrote. Keep in mind, Peter's the one who helped shape this gospel that John Mark then went and inscribed for him. But this is what he says at the beginning of his first pastoral letter to the church in Rome who is the same audience of this book. He says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, for through faith, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all of this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief of all kinds of trials. These have come so that your proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Christ Jesus is revealed. I mean, just memorize that. There's, I mean, so much in that. And, and Peter is writing to a persecuted church, and he says, don't, don't lose hope. Don't lose hope because you are invited into a living that what Jesus has prepared for you, it is secure. It is stored in heaven. And even though you may be suffering for a little while, do not think that that is the trajectory of your life because what Jesus did in his body is your story, not just his. And that we are invited into, like church, we are invited into resurrection life. This is our living hope. And I recognize in this room that right now the circumstances that you wear on your shoulders may be immense and daunting and sometimes just overwhelming to the point you can't even go on. I just want to speak to you the words that Peter spoke to his church through the Holy Spirit. Is that in his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is our inheritance 
Now notice there's future language in here. This is not, we are not preaching a gospel that says, if you believe this and pray like this and give this much money, then guess what? Your life is going to be shielded from the trials of this earth. Rather, this is written from a man who was later on crucified upside down, written to a church who was persecuted, and his, his commendation for them was, don't stop because you have no idea what's awaiting you. It's resurrection. This is our living hope. And I, this has special significance for me this week because I've spent this week grieving. My second grandpa passed away this summer, my first in June and my other last week. I spent the last few days in Phoenix, Arizona, going through my grandpa's stuff, crying with my family. And we got back from Phoenix just in time to go to a memorial of some friends of ours who had to grieve the loss of their child. My week has been saturated with the brokenness of this world. And I could not think of a better week for me just to read about the resurrection. It doesn't remove loss, grief, pain, questions. It just reminds me of a living hope. This tree is not because I'm trying to look aesthetic up here. This tree was given to me this week by a family in our church. It was just a, a grieving gift. And I don't think they recognized how significant this was. This is a, this is a baby olive tree. And olive trees in Israel are called the resurrection tree. And the reason they're called that is when an olive tree dies, a new one is birthed through the middle of it, and a new tree begins. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, I was there a few years ago, they decided to take some samples of the olive trees in that grove where Jesus prayed the night before he was crucified. And they took them back to, I believe, to Columbia University and to Oxford to study the trees of how old they were. And both of them came back saying that these trees are over 2,000 years old, which means the same olive trees in the Garden of Gethsemane today are the same olive trees that Jesus leaned against as he prayed towards his death. And so this symbol for me is a consistent reminder that even when there's death, loss, grief, pain, suffering, trials, brokenness, that this is my story. This is the story of the church. This is our story. It does not dismiss or deny the pain of this life, but rather it identifies it and gives it the dignity it deserves so that we can point our hope and our trajectory towards him. And so, and you may, and you may be asking yourself specifically if you don't know this. Well, what is the inheritance? What is awaiting us? Is it just some sort of metaphysical kind of ethereal experience? And I would just say it's actually the opposite. It's more real than everything you could taste, feel right here in this room. In the book of Revelation twenty-one, it describes it like this. It says, "When I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth." 
first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who has seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. I love that last line. He says, write this down. This is not a fairy tale. This is not wishful thinking. This is the truest reality you could ever grip with your heart. This week I got a call from the pastor who's going to be taking over for Brian and Caitlin from Middleburg, South Africa. I've met this guy like twice on the phone. And he says, hey, in 30 minutes I'm doing a prayer meeting with my entire church. Could I call you in? Sure. So James calls and he's like, he's like, hey, you're in front of all this church. And this like South African church just erupts in like applause. And I'm like sitting in Phoenix, Arizona, like in my board shorts, just like, hi, hey guys. And, there, and he asked me about the journey of Light Church and starting downtown and Brian and Caitlin and coming over. And I'm sharing that story. And at, at the very end, he says, I think I have a word for you from the Lord. And he starts reading Isaiah chapter 60. I'm going to read that over over our church today as a prophetic word for what God wants to do here. But here's what's beautiful. I had no idea. Revelation 21, what we just read, is literally taking words from this same chapter of Isaiah 60. And he had no idea. This was our teaching text for the day. But in front of, Literally on WhatsApp, as I'm hearing this, I'm sitting in this condo in Phoenix, Arizona, and he starts reading these words over me, and I just start to just to tear up. And I, I think this is not just a word for us. I think it's a word for our church. I just want to read this over our very first official Sunday. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See? Darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar, and your daughters are carried on the hip. Then you will look and be radiant and your hearts will throb and swell with joy. Lord, may it, may it be. Last thing I want to do is I just want to read you a poem. My sister sent this poem to me on the, the day of our grandpa's memorial. It's from our favorite poet, Roka. And as I, as I read this poem, this is written from a man who had his own complex spiritual journey. He writes about resurrection. And I just, 
I want the beauty of these words to evoke something in us out of the of the dimension and the order of death and darkness and lift up our eyes to the reality in the realm of light and life. He says this, there's also this to see. They will live on. They will increase. No longer ponds of time. They will grow like the sweet wild berries. The forest ripens as its treasure. Then blessed are those who never turned away, and blessed are those who stood quietly in the rain. There shall be the harvest, for them the fruits. They will outlast the pomp and power whose meanings and structures will crumble. When all else is exhausted and bled of purpose, they will lift their hands that have survived. Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com.